Welcome to Cape Bible Chapel. My name is James. I'm really glad you're here. You have a Bible with you. I don't really care what kind of Bible it is. Hardcover, softcover, electronic. Doesn't matter. Grab that. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the pew in front of you. That's our gift to you today. We want you to have one. Join me, if you would, in the book of Galatians. We're in chapter 3. Today we're going to look at verses 15 to 22. Before we dig into the text today, let me ask you this question, and this is not just small talk. Man, what do you think about the weather? Hasn't it been ridiculous? I mean, the last couple of days have been really nice, don't get me wrong, but before that, I mean, like I wore a jacket on Wednesday, I think. I can't count the number of times I've said to somebody, I think this is the last cold spell we're going to have. No, wait, this is the last cold spell. I'm pretty sure this will be the last cold spell we have. But, but that being said, I love it. I love living here in southeast Missouri. I love living in an area where you can experience all the different seasons. And then I know every person experiences them uniquely. Some people love the cold and some people hate the cold. And so it's just neat to see how that impacts us. And thinking about that this week made me think really about the fact that we all go through seasons of life where we change. Each person grows and changes uniquely and differently. And I thought about that really because of one of the illustrations Pastor Jeremy used last week with our parent and child dedication. I don't know if you saw that or not, but he brought up a big jar full of marbles. He said the idea was you take out one marble each week, or if you have kids, every week until they turn 18. That's something Christina and I do at home. We've got these four big jars filled with marbles, and our marbles are going down. Every Sunday night, we have our family time, and the kids take one out for each one of the kids. And then later, after they go to bed, Christina and I will sit and reflect on all the marbles that are gone, all the marbles we've lost along the way dealing with kids' stuff. That's just what you do. Kids go through seasons. We all go through seasons of change. I think we understand this. I remember this week thinking about my buddy Matt Gordon. He's preaching here one time, and he said that his go-to outfit when he was a kid was jean shorts and cowboy boots. And it was so funny. I was thinking about that, and I hadn't told. I woke up yesterday, and Macy came out wearing jean shorts and cowboy boots. I thought it was awesome. And I think I could be wrong on this because I don't have a lot of fashion sense. As a girl, I think you can still pull that one off. I think really no matter what age you are. But for adult males, I don't see any jean shorts and cowboy boots is all I'm saying. (laughs) We go through these different seasons in life. For kids, jean shorts and boots, that's a winner. Because kids can just do things differently. We understand this about kids and and their season of life and fashion choices. And I remember last year my family went to a 4th of July party. And we showed up like about 5 o'clock. There was a dinner or whatever. And this family showed up. We know them. We love them. And they showed up, and all their kids were wearing their pajamas. I thought it was so great. I mean, like kids, you know, rocking their Spider-Man PJs. Because their parents knew at some point in time during the fireworks they were going to crash. And so they just killed that stuff. We don't have to change them. Let's just have them wear their pajamas. And it was so great because the kids had zero reservations about it whatsoever. They just showed up at a party in their jammies. They were ready to go. You know, that's something they can do. If I'd showed up at the party in my jammies, you know, (laughs) Somebody's calling the cops is all I'm saying. You know? and, and so that begs the question, as we're walking through this series, this letter that Paul writes to the church in Galatia, are we stopping and asking, what season of life are we in? Because we all go through them. As we're spending this time trying to learn these things and apply it, what spiritual season of life are we in? Let me just cut to the chase on this, because we showed up at church today, and nobody out there is wearing jean shorts and cowboy boots even if we really want to. Why not? Because we have some awareness, something has told us that's not the season we're in anymore. 
So be honest with yourself and ask, have you come today as a genuine Christ follower? Or have you come today and honestly, you're a good person, you have some morals, you wear an outfit that makes you look like you might know Jesus, but honestly, you just know about him. Sometimes we just know about people, like we might know about a celebrity or a sports figure. I feel like I know a little bit about Johnny Manziel, former Heisman Trophy winner, former Texas A&M quarterback, soon to lead my Cleveland Browns to the pinnacle of success. I'm just positive. But here's the deal. I don't know him. I just know about him. Let's ask that question as we walk through the text today. Let's be honest with ourselves. What season of life are we in when it comes to really understanding the things of God, especially when it comes to understanding grace? Are we Christ followers? We're genuine Christ followers, but we struggle to fathom grace? Join the club. It's a hard one to grasp. It really is. Or do we show up and we're not yet Christians? We know about Christ. We don't wear the jeans and the cowboy boots, and so we think we've got everybody snowed. But here's the reality. God knows. God sees hearts. I can't see them. And I'm glad I can't see them. I don't want to see my own sometimes. Where are we in this? Paul's leading us through this long study in the book of Galatians, how to fully understand God's grace. Where are we? As a church body, you know we're here in chapter 3. This entire chapter is just this brilliant doctrinal defense of justification. Talked about that word when we encountered it earlier. It's a legal word that means we are declared righteous. Not because of anything we did solely based on receiving God's grace through his son Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. And here's the reality. The work of Jesus Christ could justify all humanity. It could. But it only benefits those who respond to what God has done by placing their faith in Christ. By believing Jesus is who he says he is in the Bible. By believing he did what he says he did. Those people are then justified. They receive salvation. They're saved from being eternally separated from God. And Paul, over and over, is just so crystal clear that this happens by faith. Nobody can earn their salvation. So in verses 1 to 5, he points to this by, by referencing the personal experiences of these people he's writing to. He says to the people in the church in Galatia, how were you saved? Was it by faith or was it by works? Then in verses 6 to 9, he defends justification by pointing to the Old Testament example of Abraham. Abraham was the father of faith for everyone who's professed faith in Jesus. How was he justified? Was it by works? Was it by faith? We know it was faith that was reckoned to him as righteousness. In verses 10 and 12, Paul shows the consequences of us trying to keep the law for salvation. He says, sure, if you could keep it 100% of the time, that'd work. But since we can't, if we try to earn our salvation that way, we'll actually be cursed by it. Then finally, in verses 13 and 14, Paul just drops the hammer, and in an irrefutable way, he points to Jesus Christ. So today, in verses 15 to 22, Paul's just going to continue this practical defense, this doctrinal defense of salvation by faith. And he does it by offering two more views. First, in verses 15 to 18, he's going to remind us this core message that he repeats over and over again. Salvation's by grace through faith. That's always the way it's been. It's never been any other way. You can't come back later and try to add something to the way people are justified. What he's saying is God's solution for reconciling people to himself is permanent, always by faith. 
then in verses 19 to 22, Paul's going to really address a question that I think a lot of us have had. I'm sure a lot of the people in Galatia had. Okay, then why? Why did God give Moses the law and then really all of us the law? Why do we have it? What's the purpose? So that's where we're going to be today. We'll get started by looking at verses 15 to 18 of Galatians chapter 3. Follow along with me. Paul writes, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. He says, I'm going to give an example here. He says, what about a covenant? Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds condition to it. He says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. He says, what I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. He says, for if the inheritance is based on law, then it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So Paul's addressing the churches in Galatia, but if you think about it, he's really having an indirect dialogue with these Judaizers who've been preaching a false gospel to the people in Galatia. And it's tricky because he isn't speaking with them. He's speaking to this group of folks that he hopes is going to go speak to them, that they've been leading astray. There's a group in between here that he's trying to equip to go be able to carry the truth and have a direct dialogue with the Judaizers. Because Paul's deal, and he doesn't want to just throw out his defense and win the argument. Paul cares about people grasping the truth. And now this is hard to do. I think we understand this. Have you ever played the game of telephone? You ever playing that as a kid? You get a bunch of people in a room and everybody's in a circle and you whisper. You whisper your message to somebody and then it goes all the way around the room. When it comes back out at the other end, is it ever what the message started out being here? No, almost never is. This is why Paul makes so many efforts. He goes to such great lengths to try and equip these people. He wants them to understand the clear message because he wants them to go have a dialogue with the Judaizers because he cares about the false teachers too. He doesn't want to just prove them wrong. He wants them to grasp the truth. And so Paul's dealing with this reality that the Judaizers are there, and they might say something like this, well, sure, Abraham was saved by faith. I'll give you that. But then 430 years later, the law came along, and now that changes everything. When God gave the law, he actually meant for that to change the basis for salvation. Now, Paul is so great here. Because it becomes really, really apparent that the Bible writers are inspired by the Holy Spirit because they come up with all the answers to these great things that we wouldn't think of. Every scenario that a false teacher could come up with. So if the Judaizers are saying, yeah, we get it. Father Abraham was the father of faith, but then the law was introduced, and then I'm sure the path to salvation became different. And so now you have to obey the law to be justified. And Paul's answer is, that's goofy. In these verses, he says, you know that's goofy even on a human level. When you enter into a deal, when you sign a contract, after you sign, you can't come along afterward and arbitrarily make changes to it. That's not the way it works, right? But we get this. Christina and I have a will. If I get run over by a bus on my way home from church today, then they're going to go to the judge. I'm going to go meet Jesus, and they're going to go to the judge, and and he's going to read my will. What that's going to look like is he's going to pull my will out of this big legal envelope, and he's going to read it. It says, well, it says here, James gives the $3 in his checking account to his wife. 
and, and she gets the house and the car, and, you know, and he's going to go through all those things, and then he's going to fold it up and stick it back in the envelope, right? Well, that's great, but what if after he does that, he goes, okay, that's how it'll work out if Christina never marries again, and if Gavin goes to a certain school, and if Carson gets a certain GPA, and if Macy doesn't date till she's 30, what if he adds in, he adds in all these things? Can the judge do that, even if I'd like those things? <laughs> Can the judge come in and add those things in afterward? No. He can't make changes to a document that's already been ratified. Whether the judge likes the condition of my will or not, he just has to let the document speak for himself. Well, that's Paul's argument here. What he's saying is God made a promise. You can't come along 430 years after the promise and try and add something to it. And we're going to stop and pause here a little bit because I want to want to really flesh this out. What God has made here is a covenant with his people. This is something we need to address because in reality, most of us don't grasp covenant language. We kind of get conditions and contracts. We like that. We like the idea that if you violate the contract, then I can violate it. Now I know there's a way out. We can get that if relationship doesn't work out or something doesn't go the way we want, that's why we negotiate over the contracts. That's why we add all this legal jargon. Well, here's the scoop on covenants in the Bible. They're mentioned several times. Many times they are simply contracts between people or between nations, and those are always conditional. But often, the word covenant is used to spell out the terms of the relationship between God and his people. And honestly, a lot of those covenants that God's made, they do have a conditional aspect to them. But hear me on this. In the Bible, there are some covenants that don't. They're called unconditional covenants. And we need to understand that. The ones that are conditional are always about faith and obedience. The way it works is if we're obedient, we'll be blessed. And if we're disobedient, there'll be consequences. That's it. That's a big theme in the Bible. So we need to be able to grasp that to understand the covenants. But like I said, there are covenants that don't have any conditional aspect whatsoever. And this Abrahamic covenant is one of them. It's simply a covenant where God promises to accomplish something, and then he's going to do it. It's not negotiated in any way. They didn't work this out. It was introduced by God. It's in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. God makes Abraham a promise. And that promise is about three things. It's specifically about a land, a seed, and a blessing. And hear me, it's unconditional. Now, there are other unconditional covenants in the Bible. The Davidic covenant God establishes a dynasty through David that's going to lead to Jesus. It's totally unconditional. It's not based on obedience. There's one that we, a lot of us, have experienced, we know about, and we need to hear this, we need to have it repeated over and over again, that's an unconditional covenant, and it's the marriage covenant. Do we know that? Far, far too often, we want to treat the marriage covenant like it's a contract. Well, she doesn't do this, and so I'm not going to do that because she didn't do this part. So, so we have irreconcilable differences. We're just going to dissolve our marriage. Irreconcilable differences is legal jargon. Irreconcilable differences is an impossibility when it comes to the marriage covenant. If you make a covenant with God in your marriage, hear me, God can and he will work out the difference. They're not irreconcilable. God's bigger than that. And hear me, please, I'm not trying to make light of struggles in marriage, they're real. I know they're real. 
when God takes two diverse things and puts them together in a union, there's going to be bumps and glitches along the way. But here's the deal. If you're married, I really pray that somebody came to you and gave you some premarital counseling and said, this is not a conditional covenant that you're entering into. Marriage actually is a miracle of God. God takes these two separate, different things, a man and a woman, and he sticks them together, and he makes one thing. And then, guys, you have a role that you're supposed to fulfill. And ladies, you have a role that you're supposed to fulfill, not based on what the other one does. Guys, your role is to lead and to sacrifice the way Christ did for the church. Ladies, your role is to respect your husband for that sacrifice and submit. That's it. But then you hear him say, well, I just don't love them anymore. They don't do what I like. And, and so we're going to break our marriage contract. Well, that's okay. You can break your contract. What about the covenant that you made? You can't break that. It's unconditional. God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Well, by Genesis chapter 15, Abraham's questioning some things. And so he asks a legitimate question in verse 8. He says, oh, Lord God, how may I know that I'll possess it? You said we have this arrangement, God. It's about a land, a seed, a blessing. How am I supposed to know that I've got it? And God does something so wild here. He has Abraham get some animals and cut them in half. And then God walks, takes a stroll between the two pieces of the animal. I won't pretend to know exactly what that looked like or how it happened. But I will tell you this. I've threatened to do it in a wedding ceremony before. <laughs> threatened to bring an animal out and cut it in half and pull it and say, oh, you guys hold hands and walk in between that and see what that looks like. I haven't had the guts to do it yet. Because if I do, there will be guts <laughs> all over the place. That would be pretty graphic, wouldn't it? But that's what God does. If you lop those two things apart and you walk between the two pieces, God's basically saying, I'm making a covenant. We're not negotiating here. But if you break the covenant, this is what it's going to look like. It'd be like cutting these two animals in half. Can you fix that? I mean, good luck trying to, to put together a three-year-old cow again. Even if you shoved all the guts back up in there and you sewed it together, it's not a cow anymore. It's dead. There are consequences to breaking a covenant. You heard people say this before. Well, we're going to get a no-fault divorce because we'll both be happier that way. How? By not allowing God to work a miracle in your life? No-fault divorce, not in the Bible. Just more legal speak. And how's anybody going to be happier? You cut the animal in half. It's not the way it's supposed to go. God explains this in Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 18 to 20. Look at that passage on your own this week. Jeremiah 34, 18 to 20. He explains the ramifications of breaking a covenant. And it's a graphic passage. But he says, basically, there's going to be consequences. And it's just God's way of saying, I take covenant very, very seriously. Do we take covenant that seriously? Specifically the marriage covenant? I pray that we do. And I don't want to be harsh, and let me say this also, because if you've had a divorce, whether you had biblical grounds for divorce, and those are just grounds, it's not a mandate, or you didn't have biblical grounds, if you've had a divorce in your life, you don't need me to tell you there's going to be consequences. That's guaranteed. You're going to know that. But hear me on this. Maybe nobody's ever told you this before. God is not done with you. When we sin, it doesn't matter what the sin is, real honestly, because God's grace is enough to cover it. 
the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, that's enough to cover us. So God doesn't look down and say, man, I was really going to use Ted and Betty, but they got a divorce, so now I'm done and I'm going to write them off. No, that's not the way it works. Now, yes, there will be consequences. We have to understand we're not supposed to break a covenant. So you jump back to the text and Paul's saying, you you can't do it. You can't come along later and add something to a contract or a covenant after it's already been established. Specifically with this promise that God made to Abraham that results in him being Father Abraham, the father of all who profess faith in Jesus, there's no way to add to that. It's already set in stone. So you can't come along 430 years later and try and add keeping the law to it. It just doesn't work. And Paul's so intentional there in verse 16 about the promise being to Abraham and then the one seed. Remember, that was part of the promise, a land, a seed, and a blessing. And the idea is Paul knows the faithful remnant of God's people will get this. But he wants to be clear so that we understand it, so that everybody understands the fulfillment of the promise comes through one person. One individual, he's the Messiah, it's Jesus Christ. Then in verses 17 18, it's hard to believe, Paul kind of repeats himself again, but he does it to make sure we grasp the application part. He says the response of faith is God's permanent plan. Hey, before the law, how were the patriarchs saved? It was by faith. So why would the law coming along change that at all? If that was how it would work, why would we practically try to change it? And what God is saying here is, is Paul's saying it for him, that promise that I made to Abraham and then the law that God also gave, they're two different things. We're not supposed to take those things and try and throw them together and blend them up. They're not a both and, like we talked about a few months ago. Paul uses the words, this inheritance, in verse 18. This is what he's talking about, the promise that God made to Abraham. That salvation comes by grace and through faith in Jesus. It's unconditional. It's just a gift to those who believe. So adding obedience to the law as a condition doesn't make any sense. In the application part for us, we need to do that. We can't add conditions to something that's already been established. Now here's the deal for our application part. I get that that's hard. We're going to struggle with things because of sin, because of how we're wired, because of this fallen world we live in. Application is seen easiest in marriage. It's why we struggle. It's because we want things to be, what? Fair. We just want it to be fair, right? And that's why Paul struggles, because he knows we're going to have a hard time applying it. It's not fair. I do all the housework, and they don't do any of the housework. It's not fair because I make the majority of the money, and all they do is spend it. And what we're saying is, hey, what I really want is a conditional contract. I should only have to do the part that I agreed to, and then only if you do the part that you agreed to. And hear me on this. If you're signing a contract about buying or selling a house or something, I'm with you. I'm all in. It should be fair to both parties. But here's where we get confused about unconditional covenants. We don't get to negotiate. We aren't supposed to make those fair. The fact that God made this covenant with Abraham and we get to participate, by grace and through faith, because of what Jesus Christ has done, that's not fair. The fact that Jesus took my place on the cross, he died for my sin, that's not fair. Do you remember what we called it just a couple weeks ago? The early church father, Athanasius, he called it the glorious exchange, where God sends his son 
who knew no sin to become sin on my behalf. And then, when we profess faith in Christ, we get to be viewed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So answer me this one. What's fair about that? We get something there's no way we could ever in a billion years earn, and God gets shafted. And that's the deal that he made, because he loves us. God made Abraham this promise. It's an unconditional covenant. And from a human perspective, I get it. We can really grasp so little of it. But would we be willing in this season of our life to just give up, to just get out of our own way and take what we know about ourselves and just surrender it to God? Give that to what we know about God. Place our faith in Jesus because that's the way from the Old Testament to the New Testament that salvation comes. It's always been the same. And so Paul's saying, don't let the fact that the law came along confuse us. What Paul's teaching about is the permanence of faith. Then in verses 19 to 22, he shifts. And finally, he intentionally addresses this question that so many of us have had. He says, what's up with the law? If it can't save us, then what's the purpose of it? Paul asks and answers that question first in verses 19 and 20. He says, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. There's your reason. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Verse 20 says, Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. So why do we have the law? Paul says it had to be added because of transgressions, because of our sin and our sin nature. What does that mean? Well, it's a couple things. And one of them we've talked about a little bit at length already. The law came to show us our transgressions. But the other we haven't covered too much, and it's this notion that the law restrains our transgressions. It doesn't take them away. It doesn't stop the bad stuff we do. It just cages them in a little bit. Now, I've used this illustration before, but it was in a different context. But it won't be a big shock for you to hear this. I'm going to admit I break the speed limit. Only on the interstate. I'm super, super subjective. And a nod to my sinful nature, what I do, somebody in authority once told me, I think I asked him, hey, how fast can you go on the interstate? That's a good question. They have signs, you know. I said, how fast can you go? And, and this guy said, you know, the state troopers, they don't even notice if you're, you know, unless you're going like seven or eight miles an hour over the speed limit. So that being said, I go like five or six miles an hour over the speed limit. I don't even know if it's true. I mean, I trust the guy I asked, but, but here's the deal. We have several troopers that attend here. I bet if you'd ask them, hey, can I speed? They would be objective and say, no. Don't even go one mile an hour over the speed limit. But I'm a sinner. I asked the question. I heard what I wanted to hear, and I ran with it. So based on my confession, let's ask this question. Why do I only go five or six miles an hour over the speed limit? I'm going to stand up here in front of God and everybody and admit that I'm breaking the law. Why don't I just shatter it? Because way down deep, I'm a really righteous person. No. I bet you know the reason I don't. It's because I fear the consequences. I don't want to get a ticket, so I only break the law a little bit. Is that right? It's embarrassing to stand up here and say out loud because I know better, but it's what I do. The law doesn't stop me from speeding. It stops me from excessively speeding. <laughs> law is like a cage that restrains my transgressions. I'm fearful of the law, but hey, it doesn't change my nature. 
It doesn't make me righteous. It just shows me how unrighteous I really am. If I'm honest, I'd love to have a big old wad of cash. I don't go out and rob a bank, though. Why? Because I'm a good person and I'd never do that. I hope that's the answer. But what if I'd stand up here and say, man, I'd like to rob a bank, but I've seen a bunch of those cop shows on TV, and man, it never goes well for the bank robber. They always get caught. I don't think I'm smart enough to figure out how to do it and not get caught. If I'd stand up here and say that, does that make me a good person? Is that why I don't rob a bank? Am I a good guy? No, the fear of the law doesn't make me a good guy. The fear of the law just restrains my transgressions. So that's one purpose of the law for sure. And we've talked a lot about the other one, and that is the law is a diagnostic tool. It just works to show me where my transgressions are. We've said this before. If we have some serious condition or disease, we go and get an MRI, and that will identify the problem. It shows us where the problem is. But can it fix the problem? No. We're going to need something different to fix it because the MRI is not a solution. Now, God gives us the law for the same reason. It shows us where the problem is. We already know what it is. It's a sin issue. It shows us that, but it's powerless to fix the problem because that's not what it was designed for. And we've been pretty honest up to this point. Let's continue that. We don't like to hear that we have a problem, do we? That's not our favorite thing to talk about at dinner parties. And so what we do is we try to work around it a lot. And that leads to us having problems understanding our relationship with God. This is why I'm asking, can we ask ourselves, what season of life are we in? What I'm really asking is, how's our relationship with God right now? How are we doing at understanding His grace? And the big place where we get caught up in this, I'm pretty sure, is that we don't want to compare ourselves to God. We know that we're going to lose in that comparison. And if we lose, then we just have to accept His grace. And we really struggle with that. We don't accept very well. So what we do, what I've seen myself do in my life, is instead we try to compare our strengths to somebody else's weaknesses. Then we can look good. That's how we can make ourselves out to be superior people. Well, I'm not perfect, but at least I don't do what he does. remember a comedian talking one time about a friend of his who's comparing his strengths and weaknesses, and he was making fun of his friend who was bragging, you know, I've never been put in jail. He was like, you're not supposed to be put in jail. Why would you brag about something that you don't want to do? Why would you compare your strength to somebody else's weakness? When our standard of goodness becomes somebody else's weakness and not the holiness of God, is that the way we want to feel better about ourselves? So first, Paul deals with this purpose of why we have the law. It's because of transgressions. It's the restrainer of sin. It's the diagnostic tool. But then he deals with this reality that the law was supposed to be useful. It really was until the seed came. Until Jesus shows up. And after that, Paul's saying, now we don't need the law for comparison's sake, for comparing our strengths to somebody else's weakness. Because specifically, after Jesus arrives on the scene, we should stop that comparison and just compare ourselves to the one person who can keep the law perfectly. And then Paul gets really really detailed, and he indicates why keeping the law is inferior to having faith. And you've got to remember, this is in this section where he's building his defense. It's like a legal case. And he says the law is inferior to faith because of how we got it. 
says the law was given through mediators. Really two mediators, if you think about it. Through angels who brought the law, and then they gave it to Moses. Now, we can understand through correlating the Bible, people don't get to physically hang out with God. It's hard to grasp sometimes. So even though Moses and God had this incredible relationship, it wasn't like Moses walked up on the mountain and there stood Morgan Freeman, you know, or George Burns, or whoever our picture of God is. He wasn't standing up there waiting, going, oh, Moses, good. Come over here, I got something for you. It didn't work out exactly like that. Somehow, angels were involved in giving the commandments to Moses. They were mediators. And then they gave it to Moses, and he was a mediator. He took the law to the people, and then because the people were afraid to go to God, he was the mediator back to God. Now, that's pretty spectacular if you think about it. But here in the text, Paul's saying, you know, faith has that beat. And in verse 20, he explains it by saying God is one. That other thing's cool, but God went to Abraham with the promise. He didn't use a mediator. And it's unconditional. So God alone has the responsibility to fulfill the promise. That's better than how we got the law. Then in verses 21 and 22, Paul asks this follow-up question to what's the purpose of the law. And he acknowledges this question. Well, if faith and the law are two separate things, then is the law opposed to the promise of God? Look there in verses 21 and 22. He asks it this way. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? I love the way Paul speaks, writes. May it never be. He says, for if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on the law. He says, but the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So basically, Paul asks, is keeping the law supposed to lead people away from the promises of God? And Paul crushes that idea. He says, no, may it never be. Because Paul's point all along has been, it's not that the law is bad. God gave both the law and the promise. He just gave them for different reasons. They're not for the same purpose. The promise is that if we put our faith in Jesus will receive the gift of God's grace. Well, the law exists to show us we can't earn God's grace on our own without faith. They work together. The promise was to explain the way of reconciliation to God, which benefits everybody who responds in faith. The law was to show we need that promise of God. So he says, theoretically, yeah. If there was a law that would provide for salvation, if we could keep it, then that would be great. But that only works if sin had never come into existence. But we have a sin issue. So we don't need the law for salvation. We need grace. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4 with me. We'll have this on the screen. But this is worth flipping over to, or at least writing this reference down. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Because here in these four verses, Paul summarizes what he's been teaching the Galatians. He says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, this is the promise that he's made to Abraham. This is salvation by grace through faith. He says, that law has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, the law of sin and death, weak as it was through the flesh, because the MRI showed we have a sin issue. He says, what that law can't do, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. What did he do? 
He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled, who? In us. Those of us who have accepted the glorious exchange, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's such an incredible summary. It's written like eight, nine, ten years after Paul's written this letter to the Galatians. He never strays very far from this material. And so in our text, he's teaching, no, the law is not opposed to faith. It has a purpose. And in verse 22, he says its purpose is to shut everyone up. He doesn't mean to be quiet. He says basically it declares the whole world prisoners of sin. Now I know on the surface that may not sound like such a good thing, but it really is. You've heard those verses before, haven't you? All of sin falls short of the glory of God. What do you do with verses like that? We don't like those, so we try to ignore them. Please don't ignore it. Because if we can truly grasp those verses, then we can say, yeah, that's me. I bombed the Old Testament law test. I can't keep it 100% of the time. And if we'll admit that, then we're in a spot where God can change the seasons in our life. We can stop trying to please God by what we do or how obedient we are or how good we look when we compare our strengths to somebody else's weakness. We can get rid of all that. And we can just rest. We can just receive. We can relax in this incredible freedom and enjoy this promise of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Ask yourself today, what season of life are you in? So I was praying and thinking and talking through this message. I thought about a couple of pictures that were in my office. And so as we close today, I want to show those to you. And I hope you can make out the detail in them. Because if you can, they tell a really neat story. And they're pictures of my two oldest boys almost a decade ago. It'll be 10 years this summer. Gavin was five and Carson was four. And it would have been perfectly acceptable for them to show up at a party in their jammies. But these are some pictures of me and the boys parasailing at a Young Life camp 10 years ago. And I think they give such a great illustration of the kind of lives we're supposed to lead when we apply this correct understanding of grace we get the purpose of what the law is. Now, before I show you the pictures, let me tell you this personally. I'm scared of heights. I don't, I don't like them at all. But I thought parasailing was just a complete blast. But to really get it, you have to get rid of yourself. You've you got to give up. You have to just trust the harness you're sitting in. You have to trust the chute behind you. You have to relax and try not to figure out how to stay up in the air by yourself. So let me show you this first picture if I can. This is my handsome boy Carson 10 years ago. A lot of marbles gone out of the jar since then. It's hard to believe he's taller than me. But just look at his posture in this picture. He's just chilling. This is pretty much Carson's posture through life. But, but he's, just, he's just free and easy. He's just totally along for the ride. He trusts the harness. He trusts the chute. He's ready for the show. But now if you switch to the second picture, this is my boy Gavin. And I hope you can make out the detail. Gavin doesn't trust the harness or the chute near as much as Carson did. As you can see, he's got a little grimace on his face. And honestly, I think he thinks he's going to have to hold himself up for the entire ride. He's just gripping on with everything he's got. Now, I'll tell you this. Either eventually his arms got tired or he learned to trust. Because one way or the other, he ended up really enjoying the ride. See, here's the deal. Parasailing is a blast. It's just absolutely breathtakingly beautiful to be able to see God's creation from that viewpoint. But if we're up there, 
and we're thinking that we've got to hold ourselves up to stay in the air, if we're worried about whether the chute can hold us, then we're going to miss it. We're going to miss all the joy that's in the ride. Because the experience is in letting go of the rope. It's not holding on to the harness. It's trusting the chute. That's where the adventure is. Can we see that our experience in this life is the same way? What season are we in? Can we let go of trying to keep the law in order to earn God's grace? Can we just lean in on God and trust that he's going to carry us? To do that, we've got to let the Holy Spirit fill our lives the same way he fills the chute on the parasail. I don't want us to miss out on this adventure that God has for each one of us in this season of our lives. There are so many of us, we try to make obedience to the law or comparison to others our safety harness. We hold on tight like that picture of Gavin. If that's the season we're in in our life, then we've got to be honest here to say and, and admit what we're really saying is, I'm not so sure Jesus can hold me up. Let me promise you today, he can. He can hold you up. But the only way it's going to work is by grace and through faith in Jesus. We can't earn it ourselves. We get to close our service today by taking communion together. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's honestly just a reminder of the glorious exchange of what God has made available for us and what Jesus did for us on the cross. We're here today, Scripture says, we can take this time and examine our hearts confess our sins, and be right with God. So here in a second, I'm going to pray for the bread and the cup. If you're new here, Clay and Ashley are going to come. They're going to play some music. And you'll have some time to do those things. Examine your heart. Be ready. If you're here and, and you've taken advantage of the glorious exchange, this is for you. It's designed for remembrance. And so while the music plays, you'll have some time. And then there are communion stations all around the room. Go to that and partake. But as you do, I'm going to ask you, if I, if I one more time can get you to ask yourself that question, what season of life am I in? Am I trying so hard to hold on and pull myself up that I can't enjoy the ride at all? Or am I in a season where I can just let go and let God carry me? Because if we can do that, then we really understand grace. Let me pray for us. Father God, what a joy to be your child. God, thank you for this study through the book of Galatians. Help us grasp grace. Help us live it in such a way where we're not trying so hard to earn it or do it or be obedient enough or compare ourselves to it. It's an unconditional gift that comes from you. God, thank you for the glorious exchange. The idea that we can get out of our own way. And because of what you've done and sending your son, our Savior, he went to the cross for us. He took my sin, what I was so, so guilty of. He took it on himself on the cross, and I get to be viewed in his righteousness. It's not fair. Thank you. God, as we take the bread and the cup, remind us of that. God, help us not to stray away from it. Help us to rest in you. We love you. We thank you for grace. We give this day to you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.